Happy holidays, everyone, and welcome to the Vela News Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Delaney. Today, we are talking about the best gear of 2021 with Greg Kaplan. But first, we are going to talk Peter Sagan, and we are joined with James Start in Europe. James, how are you, sir? Nice to see you. I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm in Venice, uh, of all places. I'll never complain about that. And and like you said, just a couple of days ago, I was in uh, in Spain uh, with Peter Sagan and his new Total Energies team as they were, did their first training camp down in Calpe. Calpe is this wonderful little village on the uh, Spanish Mediterranean, uh, about an hour and a half south of uh, Valencia. And that's where a lot of teams go in the winter uh, for the climate, obviously. Um, so that And that's where Sagan went to see his uh, new French teammates. Yeah, tell us about the the move from, you know, he's been on Bora Hensgrohe for a number of years, a team that was largely built around him. He was able to bring his brother, bring uh, support staff. Uh, he could have arguably gone to a bigger budget team, but chose to do things his way, as Sagan often does. So what is what is the thinking, the rationale behind the, the move to this this team, another another smaller team? Um, what's what's his motivation? What, what is he looking to get out of it? Well, this team this team is a lot bigger than uh, the Bora that the Bora Hanscor that he moved to uh, five years ago. Yeah, good. Point. Um, you know, they, they've they've have twenty years experience. They've um, they've you know they've had the yellow jersey in the tour for uh, with Thomas Volker twice for like ten days. So I mean, you know, they 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 it's a small team. It's not a world right. tour team, but they've been capable of great things. Um, and so uh, it was it was uh, you know and 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 it was. A choice that he made because he wanted to keep his his family together. His family is about, I think it's about eight people if you consider his soigneur who he's known since he was a teenager, his mechanic who's worked with him for over, uh, Gonchar is mechanic over 10 years, his press officer, his uh, uh, his brother obviously, um, his director sportif uh, who uh, worked with him for now for 20 years uh, off and on. So, you know, it was important for him to keep that, uh, that family together and Jean-René Bernardo, the, the longtime manager of Total, said, you know, it was a perfect fit because we're looking to grow. So we had room. Um, and um, some of the teams, you know, some of the big world tour teams just don't have that kind of room to grow. Um, so it was, you know, it worked both ways. And I, I think um, everything came together between the two very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, the first training camp was always, uh, mood is always high, but it was definitely a high here on both sides. Um Jean-René is ecstatic to have Sagan, and, and Sagan seemed really very happy uh, with his team. Uh, his press officer said to, said to me, boy, you know, our first impressions are really strong. I mean, this team is better organized than some of the World Tour teams we've been on. He didn't name names, <laughs> and that's not what we're talking about. But, you know, he just said, you know, it's obvious that these guys have been together for a long time, and they're very tight. It's a very tight uh, organization. So uh, right now, yeah, the mood's very, very high, and Peter's very relaxed, which is, I think, good for Peter. Um I think that's what he needs when he wants to, you know, have good results. Now you've been traveling the world shooting bike races for three decades. You've also been shooting Sagan closely off the bike at, at team camps and at different events, having you know a, a closer access than, than a normal race photographer. Can you speak to what he is like away from the television cameras and away from the race scene? Uh, is he, is he less guarded or is he the same, the same persona that, that people see on, on television. Sometimes he reminds me a little bit about like Greg LeMond in the sense that there's always a hive of activity around him. There's always people, he's always with people and, and um, his friends are always with him and they were obviously very important um, for him. And um, so, 
it's not like you sit down and have a heart to heart. It took me a while. As a result, it took me a while to um, to to get to know him. And I don't pretend to really know Peter, but we've worked. Yes, over the years, I worked uh, with hundred uh, percent sunglasses for a year, shooting him, um, making sure he had images from all of his races. Um, and been with him uh, in the 2019, uh, followed him inside his team, uh, his Slovakian team at the World Championships. What I can say is, uh, and he just he he just really is um, a pretty happy-go-lucky, light-hearted guy, and and he really um, is really pretty unpretentious, um, and. And I think, and the fans, I think, are very important to him. Those are things I've, I've come away with. But for example, you know, you know, like with the press, um, he often says, "Oh, well, we will see," and he sort of throws questions back at people. And for a long time, I thought that was a sort of way of him kind of keeping a distance. That's just kind of the way he is. Um, he's uh, putting together a, a sort of hotel museum spa in his hometown in Slovakia. And we were just chatting about that, you know, and, and I just said, so when do you plan to open it? And he said, oh, we will see. You know, he just um, I think that's really the way he is. Um, very lighthearted um, and, you know, and doesn't take things too seriously. Uh, very relaxed um, and, and really very unpretentious. Um, anytime I talk to him, he's always very polite. Answers always seems nice and uh, happy to see, see me. Um, and like, for example, the last day of the camp, if you, you know, then you've been around to team camps before, you know, teams usually are divided. The riders sit at one table, the staff at another, the, and, and we were, I was with the media, I was with the communications department of the team. And, um, the last morning at breakfast, you know, I look up, I'm from with my coffee and Peter's just strolling over with his plate of breakfast. And he's like, Hey, can I sit down with you guys? And, you know, I know Peter enough to know that's kind of Peter, but I think a lot of the people there were surprised to see the, one of the biggest stars of the Peloton just nonchalantly walking up to a table of people he didn't know that well outside of myself um, just and just sitting like down a and chatting. Yeah, sure. yeah, just saying, hey, what's up? You know, we talked about skiing, uh, talked about his kid, uh, you know, just kind of offbeat things. Um, sure, sure. So I think I, 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 that's an example. I think it's, it says a lot about him. It's just being very... You know, really nonchalant and and easy go, happy go lucky, and um, just you know, like he says, you know, um, don't stress, right? Yeah, that's not oh, exactly yeah. his motto, but why so serious? <laughs> why and so serious? Just, yes, yeah, I mean, you know, and that's that is him. Yeah, I, I rode his. He had a fondo in California. He's had a few fondos right. in California. And yes, rode one of the the first road fondo that he put on, and it had his name. And a lot of pros have these things, either you know current pros or retired pros, and they often will ride them and and they will just. Uh, they'll, I don't want to say they do with the bare minimum. They'll show up, they'll take photos, they'll do their thing, but they'll typically act the way they do when they're professionals and that they other people are taking care of things. I saw Sagan see someone crash during one of his events. Had nothing to do with him, um, but he uh, clearly took responsibility for it. Like his first instinct was to jam on the brakes. We we're coming downhill. Someone was riding a little over their ability, took a spill. And whereas most people just went on, uh, he took it upon himself to stop, climb back up the hill, make sure the guy was okay, you know, call a support vehicle. Not that that was a huge act of kindness, but it was unusual because that's so different than. Um, Many people's behavior, whether they're uh, just participating for fun or it, they had their name on it, so and there, were, there were no there were no cameras there. You know that was that was not a perf a performative thing. 
Like his right. thing was like, oh, this saga. guy's hurt. I'm going to go check on him. So, yeah, yeah like it's a, just saga a and, normal person. So um, I appreciate that. Now, yeah, James, I, I know you've I've got to really appreciate I was going to say, I know you've got to catch a plane back home to Paris. Um, I just want to ask you one more question to look into your crystal ball. What do you expect from the great Peter Sagan in the season 2022? He's got three world championships to his name. Is, is, are those best years behind him? Does he still have greatness on the road ahead? What, what do you predict? Well, I don't know if he's going to win another um, three world championships back to back. <laughs> um, you know, that might be asking a lot. Um, do I still think he's capable of great things? Absolutely. Um, he said to me, or he said in a press conference at the Tour of San Juan uh, two years ago, right as COVID was breaking, um, said, you know, yeah, um, it, uh, he just, you know, he sort of admitted like winning stage three of some small race is not that big of a deal to him anymore. What motivates him um, is the big, great races, the monuments, the world championships, the special jerseys and the grand tours, those are the things that drive him. And, um, and I think that in those situations, uh, with his age experience, his strength, um, I think he's still going to be a factor in my books. Um, guys like the younger generation, Van Art, uh, Vanderpool have yet to really prove themselves at the monument level. Okay. Yeah. They went one, two in Flanders two years ago in the middle of, uh, COVID when Flanders was held in August, but that was a very special time. So far, both of those riders for me have yet to prove that they can consistently go the distance and win uh, at 250 plus kilometers. Van Art was invisible at the Worlds last year. Uh, Vander uh, Poel cramped in the last 50 meters of, of Flanders. Thought, thought that was in his back pocket. Um, you know, they have yet to, to really show they consistently can go that distance. Sort of like Peter when he was younger. You know, he would keep cracking on the Paderberg with with a uh, cancel or, um, and, and I, you know, I think there's one day these guys will, will, will be the dominant next generation, but for me, they're not there yet. Uh, they that have is, yet to prove that, that they're there yet. That is a bold, spicy take, my friend saying that Van Aert yeah. and Vanderpool have yet to prove themselves in the long distances. That uh, I'm talking the monumental distances, 250, any, you know, 200. Yeah. They're 200, 220. They're almost untouchable, but you go that long distance experience age, uh, that sort of stuff comes into play. And I think at that level, I think Peter's still very competitive. Um, I, you know, when motivated, certainly for, mm, certainly I think for a race like Roubaix. Sure. And he, he's shown he's still there at the you know, end of Milan San Remo, uh, the last go round. So. Yeah. And uh, you, you, you have to, you have to also understand, you know, if you look, look at the last two years, very crazy the last two years, but don't forget he got de declassified uh, in a sprint on what stage 11, two years ago in the tour. If not, he worked very well and they won yet another green jersey. And then he crashed. He was in the, you know, he got really hurt in that crash with Caleb uh, Ewan in what was it, stage three or four of this year's tour? Mm -hmm. You know, and he was pretty much out of the tour at that point. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, what would have happened without a crash and without one uh, uh, disqualification? Maybe he'd have a, another, at least another green jersey. Who knows? But um, I think it's certainly too, too, too early to say that he's over the hill. Sure. Well, I, for one, will very much be looking forward to watching him and, and Van Aert and Vanderpool go at it. Me, on me the, too. The short and long races in 2022. All right, James Start, thank you very much. Safe travels, and we will talk to you soon, my friend. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Electronic groups, electronic bikes, and a never-ending onslaught of Zwift in your Strava feed. 
2021 was an interesting year in the gear world and here to discuss the highs and the low with me is greg kaplan how are you sir i am good ben thanks for asking how are you feeling today um a little under the weather but that's all right you know we're we're all socially isolated even for some of our group rides done on zwift these days right now for those of you who don't know this this is greg kaplan's first time on the velo news podcast greg is our web editor in philly home of the philly bike expo formerly home of us pro may it rest in peace oh we missed that race yeah. And also you were at uh, bicycling book before you joined the good ship of Ellen who's long time bicycle racer, bicycle rider, also a rower and an enthusiast in watching some of the Zwift competitions when a certain rower won Zwift worlds last year. Now we're, this, this show isn't all about Zwift. I'm kind of teeing it up that way, but we've also got a lot of outdoor riding products we are excited about. And uh, today we've got 11 topics to dive into. So let's get right down to it. Some cool gear of the year. Shimano DI2 uh, rolled out this year with 12-speed Dura-Ace and Ultegra. Uh, and in, in many ways, it was both groups were refinements of the existing systems. There wasn't anything um, wildly new and different, although it was semi-wireless. I mean, Greg, was this was this big news or, or small news? What was your take on on the new groups? I think the big news actually is twelve speed. The semi wireless is great. SRAM's been doing it for some time, but twelve speed's a big deal for Shimano, and also the new braking technology. Yeah, this the the caliper stance width got a bit wider. Uh, benefit there is you know less noise. Ultimately, is what you're after for. Uh, normal conditions when you're out of the saddle moving the bike around, but uh, primarily after hard braking, when things heat up and expand, uh, that space shrinks and uh, is more prone to rubbing and making noise. So, yeah, I've certainly noticed that it's uh, coming down a really s- steep descent into a stop. You know, you're braking hard for 10, 15 seconds. The little ching, ching, ching that you get after. It's still there. It hasn't gone away. Um, I'm a heavy person, <laughs> but uh, it's it's definitely uh, less um, intense and lasts uh, not quite as long. So still not a a perfect system. Nothing in the world is, but it's that was a, a market improvement. The ergonomics I is, I have appreciated. Again, not not huge changes. It was already a pretty comfy comfy setup there in the hoods, but the hoods are a little bit long. The body is a little bit longer, so you might be able to get one more finger in. And instead of being um, symmetrical left to right, they curve in um, a bit, which just kind of fits the natural contour of the hand. More comfy. More comfy. More comfy, more better. Uh, More clicky. Uh, One dorky thing I'm excited about is the integration of D-Fly. And uh, which means you can push little buttons on the top of the hoods and your Garmin pages will change. Uh, previous groups and the current uh, GRX group, you can get a little uh, plug-in component to make that work. And I've been arguing with the Shimano folks for years, like, can't you just build that in? They're like, yeah, but the bike shop's like selling that as an add-on. I'm like, well, I don't, no offense to my friends at the bike shop, but I don't care about bike shops. I want this the stuff to be integrated. So for, for this year, that was done. Ask and you shall receive. Yeah. <laughs> if only it were that simple. Um, one battery to rule them all, to drive them all. So uh, different than SRAM, where SRAM's electronic groups have 
a battery for the front derailleur, a battery for the front that are identical. You can uh, swap if and when your batteries die, and you will be caught out when the batteries die. Uh, Shimano retains the single battery uh, that is wired into both derailleurs, so it lasts forever. Um, I could use a loud auditory warning when the battery is getting low because the thing lasts forever. And you know, just last weekend, I was riding with a woman who was in her small ring because her DI2 had died, and the, the way it works is the front battery goes or the front derailleur start stops shifting and you've still got another like couple hundred in the rear because the, the front takes more oomph to move. So that's a common thing. And you get a warning light on the rear derailleur, which is sort of like the brain system of the whole group now, but who's looking at their rear derailleur, you know? So I could, I could, I could use like an alarm bell going off on my Garmin when it's time to charge the battery. But otherwise it's a pretty, it's a pretty sweet, pretty slick, pretty idiot proof group. All the new programming is through the uh, rear derailleur too on the two new, two new top groups from Shimano. And then the charge cable is a little like battery, you know, USB cable that uh, magnetic is what I'm trying to say, not battery. <laughs> the charging cable is magnetic, snaps onto the back of the rear derailleur. You pull off a little tab, snaps on. It's also the same cable you can use to charge your Shimano power meter should you have such a thing. So Much this. More like Another another piece of news with new DI2 coming in is that cables are out, at least at the top two uh, Durace and Ultegra levels, um, following SRAM there. And if you want the top group, you don't get cables. Um, and we're seeing something similar happen with uh, bikes and frame makers. So it seems like the frame manufacturers, like Cervelo, are following the lead of the component manufacturers where they're manufacturing bikes that aren't set up for mechanical. If you want to get one of the new Cervelo R5s, like the ones that Sep Cus rides or that Wolfenart is riding, the R5 CX in all the cross races, you're going to get a bike that has electronic only shifting, whether that's SRAM or Shimano. Those are your options for shifting that is not cable actuated. And this is definitely a big pivot away from the past several groups from Shimano where they would make a excellent Dura-Ace and also Tegra drivetrain, but also they would do it in mechanical. They're pivoted away from that so that you're only seeing electronic groups now. It means less holes in the frames and the frame manufacturers love that because it means it's easier for production and they claim it's also safer, means less uh, dirt penetration. Fewer holes in the frames. Fewer holes in the frames is always a always a good thing, but it does mean fewer options, and it does lead to more expensive bikes, ostensibly. Sure, sure. Yeah, so we've we've come a long way quickly there. I'm out not too many years ago. I remember seeing pro bikes, uh, certainly at the domestic level, but even some at the world tour level, level where mechanics were zip tying on um, some of the DI two wires because the frames had been made for mechanical groups. Uh, not electronic groups, and they were just having to cobble together things. Now the engineering is such that there are fewer zip ties, and there's a lot more hidden things. Mechanics <laughs> love. Yes, yes. So I'll just jump ahead to our th third uh, trend of the year of integration uh, versus uh, incompatibility. You know, this is something where you and I were talking about how you know once upon a time you would buy a frame 
And then the fork was a separate thing. Uh, and now we're at the point where it's not just a frame coming from a bike company, but the fork, the seat mast, the bar stem combo is like one, one piece thing um, to the point where there's almost a bit of blowback. Like we've gone too far. This is, this is getting carried away, but the, you know, one person's integration is another person's incompatibility. Um, I don't, I don't firmly take a side one way or the other. Do you, Greg, do you, are you anti bar stem or are you? I like the integration. I like, I like a bike. If a bike is supposed to be arrow, I want an arrow, darn it. And that means full integration. It means that the stem and the cockpit, the rest of the bars fit in nicely with the top tube and the fork completely blends in with the down tube. So that requires a, a lot of work, but they're designing bikes as an entire system, not as piecemeal. So that when you assemble a bike, you know that it's going to be as claimed the fastest bike because we made it arrow. And that's if you drink the Kool-Aid. Sure. It looks cooler. <laughs> it makes things harder to uh, swap in and swap out. If you have a certain length stem you are absolutely in love with and it's not compatible with a certain bar, you may be in trouble. Sure. It seems like bikes are becoming almost like a mobile phone or computer ecosystems now where like if you go with Apple, that's fine, but you're going to have to have a dedicated Apple charger and it's, it's going to sync with the iCloud and you're committed to that whole ecosystem, not just one part that will play nicely with others. The wall garden assures compatibility, <laughs> but it makes things challenging with regards to customization for sure. You know, we saw, you know, one big example of the, how things can get sideways with full compatibility was with, uh, Matthew Vanderpool's Canyon arrowed snapping on him at a race earlier this year in March, you know, the handlebar, uh, broke and it wasn't just a matter of, Oh, we'll just pop on a new handlebar because the bar stem was one piece and that was proprietary to that frame set. So that put him and anyone else who had, a new Canyon Air Road, which was subsequently recalled in a, in a bind for uh, many a month. Folks, don't try this at home and <laughs> drill out the head tube in your Canyon. Holes <laughs> mechanics did for him. Yeah. Back to your point about fewer holes is a, is a better thing. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. So that, that, that is a trend that continues. And I'm with you. I like a integrated bike with the caveat that if, if everything fits you, I mean, that's, that's the big thing is that if you know all your measurements and have a bike that's dialed in, you're not going to be changing your fit often. Um, I understand that it's handy to be able to pop on different stems, different bars, especially with, you know, you and I getting test bikes in, you want to get the thing to fit you and putting on a new stem, you know, adjusting four to six bolts is a much simpler thing than putting on an entire new bar stem and re you know, running new brake lines and shift lines through that thing. That's, that is a, a hassle, but I think that can skew our perspective a little bit as opposed to someone who knows their fit and is going to get a bike that's going to last them for two to five to 10 years and their fit isn't going to change. And they're just going to have a, a beautiful, fully integrated bike all the while. But back to, back to groups. Let's, let's, let's talk, let's talk more parts. Another big story of the year. SRAM rival ETAP Axis bringing wireless shifting uh, to a much lower price point. You know, your, your price may vary, but they, you know, they're advertising it around $1,400, which was substantially less than the top 
Red, the second tier Force, and also Shimano's Dura-Ace and Altegra. So it's 12-speed. It's fully wireless. Um, it's got SRAM's new gearing system, so it's a little difficult to compare gearing. So the top gear you could get is a, a 48 chain ring uh, when paired to its teeny tiny 10-tooth cog. Makes it a little bit bigger than a 5211, but a little bit smaller than a 5311. So... Plenty big on the top, and then you can go all the way down to like a 3536, like lower than one-to-one gearing. So great gearing and a lot of small steps in between. What do you think about the the new rival, Greg? I think it's every bit as good as the red. It may weigh a little bit more, and it may not have some of the fancy finishes to it, but it's at a price point that's a lot more approachable, which means we'll see it on a lot more bikes hopefully soon. And it plays really, really well. It just works. Yeah, for sure. You know, your yeah, cost is, you know, about 1200 bucks less than force and about 200 grams uh, heavier. But uh, if unless you're counting with your credit card or a scale, yeah, when you're on there, the, you know, the shifting feels the same. One thing that I think feels, feels and looks better is the hood shape on the, on the rival ETAP axis. Instead of the, the, pretty massive silos that force and red have that, you know, extends up. This is a much smaller, um, you know, more, more campy like shape to it. So I appreciated the, the aesthetics and the hand feel of that. So nice work SRAM on the rival ETEP axis. Uh, SRAM also never won to rest on its laurels. SRAM also came out with a gravel, uh, potpourri of pieces with its explore group xplr vowels are banned these days so it's only only consonants and, and products um so i rode the xplr at steamboat gravel where vowels are also banned sbtgrvl and yeah loved it it's a good setup it was not not too different than you know the etap axis that's out there 12 speed wireless um but you have a new cassette on the back so You've got a 1044 option as well as the 1050, which is huge, or even a 1052 if you want to pull in a, an Eagle uh, from the mountain bike side. Or if you want, and those, so those are if you're running a single ring, if you want to go two by, you can run a 1036 or a 1033. So huge range of gears, um, but with small steps, especially if you've got a uh, front derailleur on there. It's also a gravel suspension fork from sister brand Rock Shocks with the Rudy. And uh, gravel tires, of course, from uh, the Zip brand. And then we had a uh, reverb dropper post added into the mix. Oh, and Zip wheels, too. Uh, the, everybody, everybody in the SRAM family got involved in the Explorer party. So that's, that was a, a big thing, joining Shimano's GRX gravel-specific groups. It, which Shimano, of course, does not have um, a suspension fork tires but uh they've had the grx gravel group for a while does shimano have a dropper post shimano does not have a dropper post so sram has a lot of leverage there because they can go to their sister brands all of them you just mentioned like zip and um and go hey look we need this wheel and that's going to be great and go to true Veda and we can go grab you know some technology from them and bring them all under one group that's a that's a lot of power that uh sram has to to innovate and they're finally putting that together and hopefully we'll see some of that trickle down into some other groups along the way. 
and you've also got time now in the mix. So we've got pedals as well. So yeah, what SRAM goes to a bike brand, they can deliver sort of head to toe gravel pieces to dress up a gravel frame set. Speaking of parts, go ahead. I was going to say, I was going to say speaking of parts, what about the, uh, the parts that, that hit the road, the tires? Always a hot topic. Always a hot topic. We had, um, it's two, two points there. You know, one, what the, what the pros were doing and then one, what we were up to this year with, with testing, doing lab testing in Finland. Uh, the pro part continues to be interesting in it, in the push towards, uh, clinchers and tubeless tires from tubulars. Now it's not a brand new story, but it continues to, to gain momentum and gain traction. If you would indulge my pun, um, we saw Julian Alaphilippe win a uh, Tour de France stage on clinchers last year. That was uh, a milestone for sure. Uh, this year we saw clinchers win even on cobbled stages. Um, and then we saw tubeless making more of an appearance. And you can, all, uh, you can push some of this off as aggressive marketing from tire makers such as Specialized. Uh, but the results are the proof in the pudding. At Paris-Roubaix, we saw a number of flats on clinchers. So that might have been a case where, like, well, this was pushed too far running thin clinchers on the, the gnarly rocks of Roubaix was, was a bit much. Um, but uh, what tires did we see coming into the Belgium first in the men's and women's races there? We saw a lot of Continentals. Both men's and women's races were won on tubeless clinchers from German manufacturer Continental in a, uh, it was almost, it seemed like it was an upset because every other tire behind them through the top several were also tubeless. And it was a big departure, especially at a, such a, such a big deal race known for destroying tires and wheels, uh, over its entire path. For sure. And yeah, seeing tubeless when Peru Bay Femmes and Peru Bay was big. And uh, like you've mentioned, for Continental, in some ways, it was an upset because they're certainly not a new tire maker by any stretch, but they were initially very cautious about the whole concept of tubeless. You know, I remember for a few years, they were making sealant and selling sealant, but they were not making tubeless road clinchers themselves because they're like, we're not, there's the wheel standards. There is no single wheel standard. We don't feel confident putting a, a tire out there in the market was their stance, you know, five, six years ago, and now they're making excellent ones. And as you have experienced, uh, the last batch, again, with Continental's uh, safety-mindedness, were uh, terrible to get on and off of some wheels to the point where, you know, Envy, at least for one wheel brand, recommended, please don't use these tires. They're so tight. They can take some wheels out of true as they're cramming down the rim. The last set of Continental tubeless tires I tried before the next generations resulted in lots of swearing, several broken tire levels, nearly <laughs> nearly several broken thumbs. But then the newest round, the tires that just won Paris-Roubaix, were relatively easy to get on, and they stayed on, which is also great, even through <laughs> some pretty, pretty rough testing, but then also at Paris-Roubaix. And they feel every bit as good as every other Conti 5000 and even as good as the 4000 before them. They are just a step up from everything else with regards to getting them on the rim. 
but they feel amazing. We also did two rounds of tire testing at Wheel Energy in Finland. Uh, one round was with Perry Roubaix tires. We, we tried to get a hold of every single tire that was raced there, or at least every make and model, I should say, that was raced there, uh, and came close to achieving that. Um, and then for our second round, tested a whole batch of 24 gravel tires trying to see what we could tease out by way of how different tire, like rubber compounds uh, affected rolling resistance, um, manufacturing methods affecting rolling resistance, uh, and have charts for days on our website. So I encourage you all to go check those out of our two different tire tests. Those are membership-only pieces, not because we're stingy, but because we like to feed ourselves and like to feed our families and this work is not free, uh, our work, nor the, the work of the folks at Wheel Energy. But there's a, a lot of cool data um, that went into both of those tests. So I'd encourage you to check those out. Another piece of big news in 2021 was gear on the body. We're seeing, you know, glucose monitors, uh, internal temperature sensors, and then things like, uh, you know, whoop straps popping up more and more amongst uh, pro teams and then also individuals. Now, Greg, you've, you've been testing some of these yourselves and, and uh, following some of the technology. What's, what's going on there? The whoop strap is definitely a step in the right direction. That definitely continues to innovate with regards to not just on the bike training, but off the bike recovery. And whoop's biggest angle is play hard. You have to rest hard. And the strap helps you monitor how effective your recovery is. But the new strap also does it. Some, it has a couple interesting features. It monitors your body temperature, your blood oxygen saturation, and other elements that go into your recovery. It's, it's, it's kind of uh, crazy how scientific it's gotten. Almost like power meters changed how cycling was approached from the late 80s into the early 90s to it's, when they matured in the 2000s. Our colleague Jim Cotton took a deep dive into blood glucose monitors, and it seems that's another area where riders are leaning heavily on technology to see how well they're fueled so that at the end of a four-hour race, they can think about sprinting more than they think about not crashing. It's kind of crazy just how scientific it's gotten, more science than art, but it's how, you, how the athletes are using it. Yes, and I think I think the analogy to power meters is is apropos and interesting in that these tools, whether it's glucose or sleep or heart rate, they're meters. They're measuring things. They're not a tool that's going to make you faster necessarily, but it's just giving you information. Some you may intuitively know, or some you may be surprised to see. Um, but it's it's brought up the same t types of arguments about is this ruining racing Are power meters ruining racing or is this making us all robots but and the glucose monitors just uh, it's visually striking for one to seeing this large patch on the back of people's arms because it you know there's a little needle that goes into the the back of the arm um you know it's technology that was brought over from at least with the, the case of the super sapiens product which is not yet available in the u.s brought over from um you know, it's a diabetic tool and, and not yet allowed for racing, but some riders are using it in their training to see where their blood sugar levels are at any given moment. Is that correct? 
Yeah, the Team Type 1 riders, um, which became Team Nova Nordisk, have been using them now for several years. And that technology caught on because if you're going to monitor your blood glucose to prevent any sort of diabetic episode, you can also do it to uh, monitor your performance, which is definitely uh, a big pivot from their intentional uh, design. But why not? We we saw when the winner of the Zwift Academy, Maud Odeman, did the team presentation. She certainly had one on her arm. That was noted. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And as a woman who has found how to get herself to the top, she got a pro contract uh, with with her legs and skills and and evidently that was a tool she had in her toolbox to do so. so. It didn't make her a better rider. It helped her guide her performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just a bit of a, a rabbit hole. The UCI's Track Champions League uh, just wrapped up. There were supposed to be five races. There were only four. But the, they had an app to go along with the racing. So fans at home could watch uh, some of the real-time body metrics of these athletes while they were racing. So you could see cadence, you could see speed, you could see heart rate, and you could see power output. Um, and so that was sort of like the next level of these metrics of the racers themselves are not paying attention to these numbers while they're racing, especially in track. You know, you can't, you can't by, by rule and by good reason, you can't have a computer head on your bars while you're racing. You're focusing on the competition. But for the, for the fans being able to see how much power they're putting out at any given moment, that was a cool thing. Uh, and you mentioned like even the the vibration thing was a, a bit of a gimmick and that you could set your phone up so you could quote-unquote feel the rider's heart rate uh, with your phone buzzing in, uh, in tandem to the beat. But yeah, I could see, you know, it's not too far off from uh, blood glucose levels being not just monitored, but transmitted as one more bit of data to uh, take fans inside the sport. Ben, there is no way I want my phone to help me bonk. I can do that on my own. <laughs> <laughs> You're an old pro at that. Yeah, <laughs> it's way too good. <laughs> so while we're talking about tech stuff, um, we've seen a lot of technology with regards to training. Zwift is definitely one of those tools. And there are other platforms out there like RGT, which recently recently hosted the American Championship from which the winners were selected to race for Team USA at the UCI Esports Cycling World Championships, also known as Zwift Worlds. Zwift Worlds. And yeah, I think you hit it there on the head that Zwift is like Kleenex. It's like Coca-Cola. If it's ubiquitous now is it to Zwift is a verb and there are plenty of other players. Yeah. RGT being one of them, Ruby, uh, Wahoo's system came out of the Sufferfest. There's a lot of different, uh, virtual writing things, but Zwift is continues to be the 800 pound gorilla. Um, I thought it was interesting that as you mentioned, uh, USA cycling had qualifiers for Zwift worlds on a different platform. That was sort of a strange thing, but yeah, Zwift is how, how many people do you think are using Zwift these days? Are they are they talking about that? An unnamed source. I like using that phrase. An unnamed <laughs> source indicated that more than one million Zwift accounts are currently registered, and that's a lot of people on bikes. We you know we can't confirm that. And when asked, Zwift CEO Eric Min said he declines the comment. But that's a lot of people riding bikes. 
And we've asked what other platforms, what their adoption rate has been. And they also declined to comment. But it just sort of seems just scrolling through my Strava feed, so many Zwip rides popping up. But I see the Wahoo Sufferfest and the system, you know, in every couple of every couple of lines in there. But Zwift by far and away is has the most users on it. And you know, we're seeing rides, not a single ride, but you know, I'll log on to a Zwift on a Tuesday over the over this past winter. And there'd be 40 some thousand people riding simultaneously across the world. And I expect to see that again coming up in the cold months in North America. Yeah, for sure. One cool piece of tech uh, I tested recently for Zwift was the Elite Riser. And this is a, a column platform that you mount your fork to. And it's uh, similar to the Wahoo Kicker Climb. It simulates climbs and descents in Zwift. Um, so, you know, take the bike up to like 20 degrees, positive 20 and down to, I want to say negative 10, negative 15. Um, and it's super fun. Uh, and you can steer with the thing. So elite also has a, a Bluetooth steering plate that you could just put your tire on, you know, your wheel and tire on and steer. Um, so this combines those two things. So it's like an elevation simulation and a, uh, steering component. There's not too many steering races in Zwift now, and those have been, um, I don't know what the word is, lackluster. There's, you know, I've done four or five crits where there'd be like six of us in there as, you know, compared to the others where there's often hundreds of, of racers and it, you don't steer the way it's more like you change lanes. Like you can move yourself right side to left side. Um, and then when you, stop steering the game will just take over it's, it's autopilot so the steering part isn't fully realized but i think down the road could could have some uh cool implications but the elevation part i find to be uh makes the whole thing much more engaging and when i was doing some racing it would also kind of give you an indication of like when when it was about to get hard uh just like when you're riding outside and just going uphill you can feel that and you instinctively push harder so i thought that uh, elite riser was a cool bit of technology now is that only work with elite systems or can i use an elite riser with my kicker you, you the latter you can i mean elite certainly isn't promoting it as um working well with others systems but you can provided that the smart trainer you have um, has a pivoting rear hub so if it's a fixed system then no you can't use it you'll break your dropouts or break the you'll break something um, but if it pivots like the wahoo kicker then yes yes you can now for uh some of our last two pieces of big gear stories of the year let's let's kick it back to uh maybe not a simpler time but uh you know some smaller players you know you were at the philly bike expo this year, which uh, was sort of a stand-in for NABS, a North American handmade bike show. Not to say that the Philly Bike Show wasn't a good, sh good show all on its own. It's existed for a number of years, but it seemed like in the absence of NABS, there was a lot of cool uh, small brands and independent builders there. What did you see at, at Philly this year? A lot of cool art in bikes. Sure, Fesco was there, and they're not exactly a tiny brand, but they're from the Czech Republic, and they're not a widely adopted or readily available brand. They make some beautiful bikes. And Dario Pegoretti had a few bikes there, and Dario makes beautiful bikes in steel and maybe titanium. And we also saw a couple other just smaller frames. If you've ever been on the cross scene, you may have seen the squid bikes around. 
some some really really notable fun bikes from some uh, hand handcrafted hand builded hand built artisans. The other thing we noticed at Philly Bike Expo is a lot of printed things, printed titanium things. So dropouts, for instance, are being printed and then put into frames. And it seems like some of the manufacturing is going that way where frame builders will, instead of just sourcing ready-made dropouts, they'll spec their dropouts and have them printed for them. So I think I think we're going to see more of that. But at the Philly Bike Expo, it was just a, uh, it was just fun and art. Sure. Bicycles. Sure. That's one of the things I love about these small bike shows is that uh, while technology of the big companies is amazing and fantastic and realistically price-wise is is the solution for most of us as far as what we will actually purchase, it is so cool to at least see uh, what some of these small artistic builders are, are getting up to. I'm, I'm happy to see that, that that trend is still alive and well in 2021. And for our last... Uh, big story of the year. Uh, we at Velo News would just like to tip our hats to the bike shops out there who kept us all rolling uh, in a time when bike shortages and parts shortages were a real global situation. Uh, if you have a an 11 speed chain right now, hold on to it and, and treasure that for the uh, the precious thing that it is. Now, you know, often uh, in a normal year, you can order a bike. Uh, from a shop and the good folks there will take it out of a box and build it up for you. And off you go. Uh, this year, much like last year, we have seen that uh, you can order a bike and it'll be here maybe in six months, maybe in nine months, uh, maybe not at all. And some of the, you know, even companies like giant, you know, the, as its name implies a gargantuan company is having trouble getting some basic pieces to put its bikes together. So we're, we're all uh, a bit constipated as far as our getting our immediate instant gratification for, for bike pieces. So bike shops did a tremendous job this year in, uh, you know, when faced with suppliers who were just telling them, nope, sorry, we're out of that, um, going and finding parts and putting things together. A lot of shops were you know, shopping on eBay to get some parts that they'd never used before and figuring out how to, how to make it work so to keep customers like you and I rolling, so... Kudos, bike shop folks, for that. Great job in a really, really tough situation, which hopefully won't continue on for too much longer. Leonard June's been asking, been getting asked questions about will Group A fit with Group Y, and he's answering questions about how to mash up across different brands and different lines and different brands. Will Campy from 2006 work with Campy in 2016, which will work in Campy maybe in 2026. Yeah. Leonard's answering those questions because the shops are having to do get very creative and do very, very wild and wacky things to keep people rolling. Yeah. But keep it rolling, we shall. And that will do it for us for this episode of the Velo News Podcast. Thanks, Greg, for joining and for keeping our website rolling also. Thank you, Glenn. And listeners at home, want to wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. Uh, I hope all your bicycle dreams come true. Thank you very much for listening to the Velo News Podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.